0: Good morning. All right. December fifteenth, 2006, the day that forever will be remembered as the night. Actually, well, for at least me, it'll be uh, the night that I remember. Uh, I took my then-girlfriend, Amy, to a concert downtown at First Ave., and then I took her to uh, dinner at Mickey's Diner, which maybe some of you know of. It's, uh, it was in Mighty Ducks. It's this uh, old, like, train car type of thing that is very small. And it actually, the meal comes with a couple of Pepto-Bismol tablets. Um, but it's where we had one of our first dates, and so we went there after the concert. And then we ended up in uh, this park, in Rice Park. Wait, go back. We don't want them to know what's going to happen. So we went to Rice Park which is a park in St. Paul, all lit up around Christmas time. Looks like something out of like a, a jewelry or a diamond ring commercial or something. It's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, so we walked from Mickey's Diner through, through this place. And without uh, Amy knowing, we actually had one of my friends who's a photographer. hiding inside this enormous lit up Christmas tree, similar to maybe that uh, kind of pinkish one in the middle there. And we were running really late, so this poor guy, he was waiting in this tree, December 15th, for uh, like an hour, and his hands were frozen, but he's a good friend, he's stuck in there, and uh, we walked through it, and I, I ended up proposing to uh, my girlfriend at that time, and just in case you wondered, she, uh, she did say yes, and soon after we, we went home, or back to my place, and, and celebrated with some friends, and... Uh, It was a good night. It was a good night. It was the night of my life. Um, And just a few days later, a few weeks later, I remember reading this passage that we're going to talk about this morning, a passage where Jesus talks about uh, what life in the resurrection is going to look like. And there's a phrase in there that talks about, uh, Jesus says, for in the resurrection, speaking of, of people who have been raised with Christ, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And I remember going To one of my theology professors at that time and just being really, really heartbroken and sad thinking, hey, I I, I finally found this woman that I want to marry. She said yes. I've never been more in love with someone in my whole life and now I'm reading something that Jesus taught about marriage not being in heaven. What's this about? And I remember just being heartbroken. So today we're going to look at that passage. We're going to look Uh, Jesus is is trying to be trapped again by some some different religious rulers. And Jesus, in his explanation, is going to share about the resurrection and how marriage fits into that. So this morning we are in uh, Matthew chapter 22. If you're brand new uh, to Hiawatha or if you're visiting this morning, welcome. We're really glad that you are here. We've been in the book of Matthew for a long, long time. And a fantastic book written by one of Jesus' disciples. And we're at the point in this story where Jesus is just about to be uh, betrayed and die on the cross for the sins of of humanity. And so uh, we're going to start reading our passage, and then we're going to jump into it. It'll be up here on the screen, and it's also in your worship folders. Starting in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him. ...who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore... Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, He's not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and how it teaches us about you and your character. We pray this morning that your spirit would be here, would would teach us what you have for us. Convict us of sin. Remind us of who we are in Christ. Excite us for this great this great new heaven and earth that you have for us. pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, so we start, verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to him. So the same day, this is right after the passage we looked at last week where the Pharisees come to Jesus with a trap. They come with this question, trying to get Jesus in trouble. And not just in trouble, they're trying to get Jesus executed. They're trying to get him in so much trouble with either the Romans or the Jews that they call for his head. So on that same day, the Sadducees, so this is a new group came to him, and, it, and Matthew here describes who these Sadducees are, who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question. So who are these Sadducees? We're going to compare them with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees have been the, the religious rulers that have been Jesus' biggest opponents, and we've seen them a lot so far in Matthew. Let's, we're going to quick compare these Sadducees to, if you can go to the next slide, uh, to the Pharisees that we've seen a lot. So the Sadducees, they were basically the priests, and they, they worked in the temple. They were a much smaller group of religious rulers, and they believed in the Torah alone. So they only believed and followed the first five books of the Old Testament. So nothing beyond nothing beyond the first five. And that's mainly where they get this uh, disbelief in, in the resurrection. They don't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection. And so they, uh, because they only believed in these first five books of the Bible, there's not a ton of stuff in there that talks about the resurrection. So that was one of the big things that they kind of hung their hat on. And so far in our story, so far in Matthew, they haven't come up very, very much. So what's probably happening is they've been, because there were rivals with the Pharisees, what's probably happening is they're just sitting back saying, hey, our rivals are just getting owned by Jesus, and that's that's really great. We're, we're happy that our rivals are looking stupid and that uh, we're looking better. But now, just a few uh, weeks ago, we saw Jesus has now entered Jerusalem and entered into the temple where the Sadducees work, and he's starting to mess up what they got going on there. We saw that he overt- overturned... Uh, their tables and where they were making money and and exchanging money, uh, selling all different kinds of sacrifices. And so now Jesus is starting to mess up their system. He's starting to be a problem for them. Verse 24, so these Sadducees, they come to Jesus saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So this law that they're they're talking about is from those first five books that they believe in. And it's from Deuteronomy. And God gave this law through Moses to the Israelites, to the people of God. Even though, or also, it was practiced for centuries and centuries prior to even this law coming through in Deuteronomy. All the way back to the time of Abraham. So we're going to read it quickly. In Deuteronomy 25... There's more to it, but this is basically the gist of this law that the Sadducees are referencing. Starting in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out. Of Israel. So even though we kind of know what the law is, we're still, most of us, are probably wondering why. Why did God create this law? Especially if you have a kind of strange or creepy brother-in-law. <laughs> so why, why, why is this law there? So since, since the very beginning, or at the very beginning, when God created uh, man and woman, there was great male-female relationships as well as with God. But then the fall happened. Then sin entered the world. And since then, men have abused their authority and their strength and their power and for much of history have hurt and oppressed women. And God's laws regarding women are way ahead of the surrounding cultures around them. And most of God's laws concerning women are really there to help protect women against the abuses or neglect that's often received from men. And these laws are, are used by God to remind people of the personhood and the value of women. And so this law specifically was made to protect women. So, especially or throughout ancient history, women often weren't able to own land or, or able to, to make any important decisions or to own property. Uh, often they were considered the, the possession of their father or their husband. And so this law is actually saying instead of this woman losing her husband and then having to beg because she has no one that can take care of her, especially in this, in this system where she needs a man to literally protect her and provide for her because of, because of the way this, this culture is run, this law is protecting this woman so that she will have a husband and eventually will have a son who can take care of her in, in, in her old age. It's also... This law is also used to help continue the, the name and the lineage and the property of this dead man so that this property doesn't go off to some distant relative but will stay in the family and help protect, protect this woman and then hopefully her, her, eventual, uh, her eventual sons and heirs. So the, the Sadducees, they use this law and they use it to set up this question. And this question is made to humiliate and to ridicule Jesus. Not necessarily to trap him and execute him. So a little, a little bit different than last week. Last week, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, and, and it, it literally said that they're trying to get him executed. They're trying to get him killed. Whereas the Sadducees, they're not necessarily trying to get Jesus killed. They just want him to lose all of his authority and to be mocked and ridiculed. So people stop following him, and he stops messing with what with this great system and the, the power and comfort that they have in the temple and, and their uh, their relationship with, with the ruling Romans. All right, verse 25. So here, here is, so they take this law and now they set up this ridiculous scenario. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So following this law. So two, the second and third, down to the seventh, without any heir. Without any After them all, the woman finally died. So they set up this really silly, really ridiculous, highly, highly unlikely scenario. So kind of to show just how ridiculous it is, I've got a little cartoon here. So the first sheep, I don't know, first fuzzy thing says, this whole thing is a great mystery. And the second sheep goes, what are you talking about, the, the, the nature of human relationships in heaven? And he goes, no, nah, the fact that husband number six couldn't spot a trend. So obviously, this situation is just ridiculous, um, and not only not only is it ridiculous. Uh, throughout throughout the Old Testament, we very rarely read about this law actually happening. So it's not not often practiced. Plus, it's just an, a, a crazy, silly situation that they're making up. So they're using this law and then adding on this ridiculous situation to try. They're going to set up their big question to try to trap Jesus to just make him look like a fool, to make him look like he's going to lose his credibility. So remember now, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe that there's life after death. They don't believe that God uses his power to raise the dead in new bodies. So, so kind of think of like, think men in black. So think about Will Smith's character at the very beginning when he doesn't know that there's actually aliens all around us. And then Tommy Lee Jones' character comes, and he's, like, telling Will Smith, actually, there's aliens all among us. And, you know, Will Smith in his his classic smart wit, you know, jokes back with Tommy Lee Jones about, yeah, right, there's really aliens all around us, and starts asking Tommy Lee Jones questions in a mocking way. He really doesn't want an answer. He's really just trying to show Tommy Lee Jones that, hey, this is ridiculous. There's really not aliens among us. So in that same way, that's what the Sadducees are trying to do. They disbelieve in the resurrection, but they're asking Jesus a question, a crazy, ridiculous question, trying to get the people to see that believing in this resurrection is actually quite crazy. It's quite ridiculous. So we're going to briefly look at, so what does the Bible say about resurrection? And so the Sadducees, like I said, only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, the, the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth is actually quite veiled, especially at the beginning. But as we move throughout the Old Testament, we start to get more and more pictures and more and more details about what it's going to look like, especially as we get closer to the cross. And then after Jesus' resurrection, it's all, all over the New Testament. But here's a few examples. In Job 19, probably the oldest uh, book in the Old Testament, we read, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, and in my flesh I shall, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. And in, in Isaiah, one of the prophets, we read in uh, chapter 26 Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, Awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And again in another, one of the prophets, Daniel 12, we read, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And finally in Psalms, King David laments after losing his infant son, but he speaks knowing that he eventually will see his son one day in the resurrection. So as we get closer and closer to Jesus, it starts to become more clear. And by the time we get to the New Testament, we see, so hundreds and hundreds of years after this, most of the people in that day believed in some type of resurrection. And so that's where we find ourselves in our passage today, although the the Sadducees are still denying that there is. So Jesus speaks a lot about resurrection and about heaven and the afterlife. And then after Jesus is raised from the dead, he physically resurrects himself. The Holy Spirit continues to work through the New Testament authors speaking about resurrection and about the new heaven and the new earth. So we find it a lot in the New Testament after Jesus' resurrection. All right, so Jesus finally, he responds to their question. He responds to their question of whose wife will she be since all all seven of these men were married to her verse 29 but jesus answers them you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and as for the resurrection of the dead have you not read what was said to you by god i am the god of abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus starts by not answering their question, but actually rebukes these religious leaders. He rebukes them for two things for this question that they ask him. The first thing is that they say, his first rebuke for them is, you don't know the scriptures, which is a huge burn. It'd be like someone telling Steve Walker, you know nothing about plants. Or talking to Peter Carlson and saying, you know nothing about music and singing and playing guitar. So it's ridiculous. So even though, or even in Jesus' rebuke of these Pharisees, there's a great warning for us. So these guys really, really knew the scriptures. Most of them had had much of the Old Testament memorized. But Jesus says, even though they, they had it memorized, they didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the Bible. So this is a great warning that Jesus is giving us as a church, giving us as Christians. Some questions we should be asking ourselves. Are we continually asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth of his word? Or like the Sadducees at this time, do we think we know it all? We have it memorized. We've been reading it for years and years and years. And we think we know what it means. But when God shows up and tells us something different, we think God's wrong because we already know his word. Another question we should ask ourselves, are are we reading scripture among Christian community? One of the great ways that God speaks to us is through his, through his word and especially within Christian community. If you're reading the Bible all by yourself, it, it could be easy for us to start not understanding the Bible. But when, when we are reading it in Christian community, with our families, with our church body, with our community groups, we're able to better understand it. And if, if we do have questions or if we do get off, uh, and start believing some, some myths, mistruths. We have lots of people around us to help us with that. Third question we should be asking ourselves as well is, are we, are we just seeing these laws like the Sadducees saw? Or instead are we seeing the whole story of Scripture? Are we seeing this as a rule book with a bunch of rules that we need to follow? And we have those memorized and we know them really well and we're doing them. Or are we seeing this as one great book, one long story, one continual story? So another way of saying that, are we focusing on the trees? Do we know verses pulled out of context really, really well and are following them? Or are we seeing the whole scripture, the whole of salvation history? So remember that these Sadducees, they understood and they knew their Bibles, especially the Torah, those first five books, really, really well. They knew the law, but they're completely missing the spirit of the law. The reason why that these laws actually exist They knew what these laws said about marriage, but they're actually missing what marriage is pointing to. Pointing to a relationship with God, the same God that's standing right in front of them. Jesus' second rebuke to them, first one is, you don't know the scriptures, and he goes on to say, you also don't know the power of God. These guys, they say that they know who God is, They say that they worship him, but they don't believe that he can raise the dead and give eternal life. Again, this is another huge insult to them because these are the people that literally go before the presence of God in the temple. These are supposed to be the people that know the power of God. These are the people that are close to, to God's presence here on earth at this time, but they're missing it. Again, Jesus gives us another warning as his church, as he rebukes the, rebukes the Sadducees. Questions we should be asking ourselves, are we doubting God's power? Do we really believe that God is as powerful as he says he is in the Bible? So practically, our disbelief in God and his power can look many different ways. It might look in questions that we're asking And in disbelief, questions like, can he really forgive my sins? I know the Bible says he can, but can he really forgive my sins? The truly horrible, wicked evil that I've done? Or a disbelief in God's power might look like, can he really heal my heart of this pain or this disorder or this sin or this heartache that I have? He says he can. He says he's all I need, but I don't know if I believe him. I don't know if he's strong enough. I don't know if his power is great enough to do what he says he can do. Or maybe we're just surrounded by evil. Or life's been really, really, really hard. And we wonder, can he really defeat evil? I know they say it at Hiawatha again and again. And when I read my Bible, it says that Jesus will defeat evil ultimately and finally. But this world is so messed up. And I see evil all around me. And it seems so powerful. And finally, our disbelief in God's power, just like it did with the Sadducees here, can can be us questioning, can God really raise the dead? Can he really raise the dead? Or is that just something that someone tells me to help make a funeral, or something sad, not be so sad, or help us deal with that? But the Bible guarantees us, Jesus guarantees us, that we can trust in God and his power. And ultimately, too, with the Sadducees not knowing his power, they're totally missing out on God and his salvation. Over and over again in the Bible, it links God and his power with his salvation and with his resurrection. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died in my place, resurrected himself, and now gives us eternal life through that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 30, Jesus continues after his rebuke. He teaches, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So we're going to spend a bit of time here unpacking this phrase, this really important phrase, this confusing phrase, this phrase that, that brought me great sadness as I was finally uh, engaged to be married, thinking, well, what does this mean? What does this mean that there's neither marriage after the resurrection and people are not given in marriage? Well, first of all, we're going to start with, so what, what's Jesus not saying here? First thing he's not saying is that when you die, you become an angel. A lot of people, hopefully not in here, but a lot of people in pop culture believe when we die, we go to heaven, we float on a cloud, we wear a halo, If that's heaven, it really does not sound like a place that I want to go. But first of all, Jesus is not talking about uh, when we die, we become an angel. But instead, he says we become like the angels in heaven. So just like angels aren't getting married, they're not having kids, and they're not dying, we will be like that in the resurrection. Because there's no need for that in heaven. There's no need to get married. There's no need to procreate and have kids. And there will be no death. Jesus is also not saying, he's not saying that you won't remember anyone that you loved here on earth. And you won't know them and you won't be able to be with them. After Jesus was actually resurrected in his physical body, we still saw how much he deeply, deeply loved and cared for his disciples. When he came back, he was in his glorified, his perfected body. And a lot of people didn't recognize him at first. So there is this kind of discontinuity with we are going to be resurrected in a new perfected body. And it might be different enough that people don't quite recognize us at first. But once Jesus revealed it to them, they knew it was him. So we're going to come back to what Jesus is talking about with uh, marriage and the resurrection. But first, before we can get there, we need to understand. So now we looked at the Old Testament, what it talks about, resurrection and the new heavens and new earth. And now we're going to look at what the New Testament is talking about that. Let's first start with resurrection. In First Corinthians 15, so this is after Jesus has died and raised himself. Paul uh, writes looking at that and, and encouraging believers in, in our own resurrection. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. Paul writes, "I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep like the Sadducees believed. Life was just over. It was dawn when we die. But we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. So until this happens, death still does sting. Death still hurts. It's sad. But after Christ comes back finally and raises us from the dead, then shall come to pass what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death and the power of the sin Is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as God, as He's physically resurrecting His people, He's also remaking and renewing both the heaven and the earth, the place where all of us in our resurrected bodies will spend eternity with Him. So when the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, this word new is is best understood as something being remade. And it's something that has newness of quality as opposed to something that is completely destroyed and something brand new created. So that's why most people believe that what God is going to do, instead of destroying this earth and out of nothing creating something brand new, he's actually going to remake and recreate and perfect this world and, this, and, 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 and heaven, which was marred by our sin during the fall. Pastor and uh, author Sam Storms writes about the nature of heaven and uh, of of the new heaven and the new earth. He writes, It is the reversal of the curse imposed by the natural creation. The hope of the Christian is inescapably earthly in nature. God's ultimate aim in the redemption of his people has always included the restoration of the natural creation. Heaven on earth, which is probably the best way for us to understand it, is but the glorious consummation of God's original design for the Garden of Eden. So we had a study uh, months and months or years ago in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And in it, the Holy Spirit gives John, one of Jesus' disciples, this amazing, beautiful vision about how God will redeem and how God will recreate creation in the end. Again, there's lots and lots I can say about this. We're just going to briefly look at a couple parts in Revelation that describe what God is going to do and how it's going to look. Starting in uh, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives, gives it light and its lamp is the lamb and its light will the nations walk or by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit So this new heaven and this new earth that God will create when Jesus comes back finally, it's a return to the garden. It's a return to paradise. Paradise and perfect relationship with God comes back to humankind and through that perfect relationship with all humanity as well. So now that we, we kind of are, are, are understanding what this new heaven and this new earth are going to be like, we can go back to what Jesus said in verse 30, this, this tricky passage, or this, this hard phrase that he says, for in the resurrection, so think of what we just talked about, for in the res- resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage. So first of all, we have to ask, what, what's the point of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? Why did God create it? We see God creating it very, at the very beginning, back in the garden, right after he created our first uh, father and mother. He created marriage and gave them to each other. Again, like I said, when I first read this passage, it brought heartache to me. I was very sad. I was confused because it seems like such a beautiful thing that God had created marriage. Why Why would he take that away in the resurrection, in the new earth? What we're actually going to find out as we unpack what Jesus is talking about is that what he's saying, it's actually more than most of us could ever hope for. So the purpose of marriage, just a straight-up purpose, why, why was marriage given, is for both procreation, twofold. Procreation, creating uh, children and, and, and making humankind spread out among the earth and, and continue, as well as companionship. And love, But we see that this is not needed anymore in paradise because it's fulfilled with our relationship with our creator. We don't need a perfect companion, so-called perfect companion, here on earth because we now have this perfect relationship with our creator again. So this, the, the purpose of marriage, procreation and companionship and love, this is what Jesus is saying, it will, will not be in heaven. Sam Storms again writes, Marriage as an illustration, sorry, marriage as an institution around which human life is organized will cease in heaven. Because it's not needed. Marriage as a social fabric or foundational unit of a society will end. Marriage as the means for procreation and the propagation of the human species will end. In heaven, we will be like the angels, which is to say that we will be immortal and incapable of dying. There is no need to procreate. And marriage as the primary marriage as the primary context for fellowship, intimacy and love will end. Jesus is not saying that you will love your earthly husband or wife less once you get to heaven, or that the relationships that you now have will be obliterated or annulled then, but that what you now experience with one person you will experience to an infinitely higher degree with God and all of his people. So this might, this might just be kind of semantics here, but I think that the purpose of marriage, both uh, procreation and, and, and love and companionship, I think that there's a difference between that and what is the meaning of marriage. Obviously, these two things are very intertwined and very related, but I think that the Bible teaches us that the, the main meaning, the ultimate meaning of marriage is that it shows off the gospel. In Ephesians 5, we read uh, there in uh, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, speaking of, of marriage, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he describes this. He describes marriage. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you've probably heard this if you've been around Hiawatha for very long. But marriage is always something that is pointing to the gospel. We see that husbands, should say marriage is pointing to the gospel. I don't know how we lost that there. So husbands, we see in this passage, rep, represent and reflect Jesus and his love for his church. And the wife reflects in marriage the church and His or her response to Jesus. So ultimately, marriage is not about us. In our culture, we're told again and again, marriage is about you. Marriage is about finding your soulmate or being happy or being fulfilled or getting your needs met. But the gospel says that marriage ultimately is not about you. You're going to receive huge blessings, and it's going to be great, probably going to be great. But that marriage is ultimately about pointing to our God and his great love for us. It's also freeing and relieving to many who are single because it tells us that singleness is both godly and valuable. And that marriage is not the ultimate, the ultimate goal for all. As, as someone who is single, whether your spouse has passed away or whether you never got married or whether something else happens and you're single, you, you now have great freedom to serve Jesus. And both the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, as well as Jesus, were both single And led very fulfilled, great lives used by by God for his kingdom. And even if you do never marry in this life, you can still have what marriage points to. Even if you never find a spouse, you still can have an ultimate, perfect relationship with your creator. Which earthly spouses are just made to point to. So because marriage, it mirrors, and dimly, it's not perfect. So because marriage mirrors our relationship with Christ, then the best moments that we have on this earth with our spouse in marriage will be infinitely magnified when we're resurrected with Christ in the new earth. So everything that we love, everything that we love about marriage here on earth with our physical spouse will be perfected in paradise with our relationship with Christ, and then ultimately through that with, with the rest of people. So we need to see marriage just like, just like a portrait. So I'll think about a portrait that's painted, beautiful, amazing portrait, a work of art, a masterpiece. So we need to see marriage like that, that it's, it's really great and we can value it and we can love it, but it's ultimately pointing to something even more real, even more great which is the person that this portrait was painted, to resemble. So realize, if you are married, realize that your spouse is a glorious masterpiece, this portrait, but that there is an even better spouse, that this painting is just imaging. Jesus ends his rebuke in answering the question to the the Sadducees by very brilliantly brilliantly, using a passage of scripture that the, that the Sadducees actually do believe in. So Jesus responds, verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, again a huge slam right to them, have you not read what it was said to you by God? Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He, speaking of God, he is not God of the dead, but of the living and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus quotes exodus three six, which is one of one of the books that the Sadducees did believe was the true word of God. So he's quoting their own their own uh, book that they think is true, and he's telling them well let's let's look at Luke Luke is another one of the gospel writers. He writes about this same this same uh, interaction between. Jesus and the Sadducees, and he had some more details that will help us unpack this. Luke 20, uh, Jesus says, The dead are raised. Even Moses showed, so this uh, Exodus 3, 6 that Jesus quotes, Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus uses this passage that they believe is true. That doesn't say when God is when God is talking to Moses. He says, "I was," or sorry, "I am the God of these people that were alive. I am the God of your father uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." But he speaks as if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are truly alive. So God, kind of wrapping all this together, when Jesus talks about marriage and about the resurrection, as well as when he's talking about the power of God. God has always been the God of the living. And even since, or even when death entered the picture, since the fall, God has always still had a plan to defeat our enemies of sin and to defeat death and to resurrect his people again into ultimate, full, eternal life that's with him, all this through his infinite power. And he gives us now marriage to help us remember that, to remember that he thought of us. And for us to, when we see marriage, and when we experience the great things, the greatest things that marriage has to offer, that it would remind us that one day we'll be reunited with our ultimate true spouse. So as we leave today, as we, as we remember the gospel and how it speaks to our life, our resurrection, how we view marriage, a couple things. Number one, know the Bible and believe it. We saw earlier with the Pharisees or with the Sadducees, they, they knew their Bibles, they had it memorized, but they didn't truly know it. So trust it. Jesus is telling you, you know me, trust me. These are my words. I am called the word of God. Secondly, know and experience the power of God. We maybe think we do, but just like the Sadducees, who literally were in the presence of God here on earth, still did not know the power of God. Trust in that power of God that raises the dead, both spiritually and in the end, in a physical way. The third thing we can take from this is see marriage what it is. It's a great thing. It's one of the greatest gifts that God gives us here on earth. But don't make it an idol and see that it points to our perfected relationship we're going to have with God. And finally, thank God for the resurrection. Thank God that despite what the Sadducees believed, that's not the truth. That there is a resurrection that we will live if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We will live for eternity with him in paradise, with our relationships, our bodies, this creation will be perfected and renewed and recreated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and all these great reminders of this great plan that you have had for your creation, for your people since the beginning, that you would not let, you would not let death reign and rule and have final say, but that you sent your son to die in our place and experience that death so that if we put our trust and our faith in you we can live again and not just live again on this corrupted fallen earth with these bodies that are decaying but back in paradise in a, in a recreated new earth and in resurrected perfected bodies help us to to meditate on that and to believe in that and let that be an encouragement to us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond with one song here.